You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. He wishes Judea made into a more obedient and disciplined province. He has ordered the new governor and me to restore order. I intend to carry out his wishes. Yes, but how, Messiah? Oh, you can break a man's skull, you can arrest him, you can throw him into a dungeon. But how do you control what's up here? How do you fight an idea? Especially a new idea. Sextus, you ask how to fight an idea. I'll tell you how. With another idea. And welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode... 385 of this podcast. A quick note, today is May 7th, 2012, and in about a month, in the month of June, I am informed by Facebook slash Meta that Facebook podcasts are going away. And so if you've been following this podcast on Facebook, uh, new episodes are not going to be posted there. Old episodes will be still available, but new content will not be available there. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you prefer to listen, except Facebook, of course, because that's going away. But Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, lots of options, pretty much it's a wide open uh, smorgasbord of platforms that this is available on. Pick any one of them. Also, too, if you would, on whatever podcast platform you prefer, be sure to leave a review. That really does help other people to find this content. If you're enjoying it, feel free to share the love, hit subscribe, and leave a review. And uh, hopefully it's a good one. If it's going to be a bad review, you can just um, not. You don't have to leave a bad review. Uh, I mean, you can, but... Yeah, I, I probably won't encourage you to. Uh, but in any event, that clip at the top of the episode is very much related to what I want to discuss in this episode. And that is the question of religious liberty and individual conscience. How do you fight an idea? The question is asked from one Roman to another as they're discussing the problem of occupied Judea. Not all of the Jews in Judea are exactly thrilled at the Roman Empire having conquered them and ruling over them. In fact, a great many of the Jews uh, are downright worked up about it, and they want to overthrow the Roman military presence and governmental presence in their homeland, if at all possible, if an opportunity presents itself. And so there's rumblings and discussions behind the scenes, underground, from the most animated, the zealots, uh, as we know them. And these Roman government and military officials, here on behalf of the emperor, are discussing, one coming in, one going out, how do you fight an idea? Yes, you can do something with the man's body, but if he doesn't let go of the idea, what of that? And Masala, you know, principal villain of the film, of the story, 
I think we're going to be going through the book here this coming year for school. It is based on a book, by the way, by a former Union general, lawyer, governor of New Mexico territory, politician, diplomat, and of course author, Lou Wallace. Ben-Hur really does get at questions of liberty and order. You know, Judah Ben-Hur, he's this Jewish prince who is an upstanding character who has virtue and the power and strength of his convictions. He's approached by his childhood friend, Masala, who is now a Roman uh, commander. He's approached and asked to help the Romans to identify and obviously eliminate men who are involved in this conspiracy that is growing among the Jews to overthrow the Romans. And Ben-Hur, for his part, he says, well, you know, I, I, I'm not with them. I don't agree with them. I'm a man of peace, but nor am I going to betray my countrymen to you. So in other words, I'm going to try and talk them out of it, but I'm not going to hand them over to you. No. Well, Masala, for his part, he comes up with a plan. An opportunity presents itself. And he not only allows and facilitates his old friend Judah Ben-Hur being tried and convicted for trying to assassinate the Roman governor when he knows that he didn't do it, it was an accident. Uh, He also has his mother and his sister thrown in prison as well, uh, left to rot. And so there's this question of, you know, in my mind, certainly, Should Judah Ben-Hur have been compelled to turn over these other men who were doing or arguing that they should do or considering doing something uh, that he disagreed with? Was he obligated to turn them over just because he disagreed with them? For that matter, was he free to say no? You know, if his conscience was such that he couldn't join with zealots, but nor could he turn them over, should he have been free to operate according to the dictates of his conscience? Apparently he couldn't, in good conscience, become an informer and turn these guys over, nor could he, in good conscience, join them. Well, this really is at the heart of the question of religious liberty. There's two articles in First Things magazine that just recently uh, were in their newsletter. And my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez, he gets the newsletter and he saw these two articles juxtaposed and decided to send me the both of them. And I am still making my way through the one by Yuval Levin titled The Perils of Religious Liberty. It's uh, a little on the longer side, but very well written. Yuval Levin, author of The Great Debate, a uh, compare and contrast uh, sort of biography slash history dealing with Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine. Uh, Yuval Levin is exploring this 
question of religious liberty from a historical standpoint and also from a individualistic versus collective uh, standpoint. So what is religious liberty? Is religious liberty the freedom to just do whatever you want or is religious liberty the freedom to do what you believe you must? You know, in the case of Judah Ben-Hur, it's not that he wants this or that, except that he wants to do what he must. He wants to do what he feels he must before God, and he wants to not do what he feels like he must not do, what he can't do in good conscience. He wants the freedom to not do anything that would violate his conscience. And this is not to be taken for granted. I mean, there are definitely cases throughout the past several centuries in Western history, in European and American history. There are definitely examples aplenty where someone abstaining or insisting that they have the right to uh, partake has been an issue for those who disagree. And typically those who disagree, who are in a position of power to punish or to persecute, represent something of the majority, or at least the majority of the strong. So, you know, a, a quick uh, example given, a ready at hand, close at hand example given that Yuval Levin draws on, and he's writing this article in 2016. The other article that is juxtaposed against it, by the way, is The Good of Religious Pluralism by Peter L. Berger, also from 2016. But consider the case of marriage equality, or consider the case of abortifacient drugs and laws and rules and policies and whatnot here in the U.S., which have in my lifetime said that employers are required with their insurance offerings to employees, uh, they're required to pay for abortifacient uh, drugs. And the only religious exemption offered is for religious organizations who are primarily engaged in religious instruction and primarily employing uh, people who share that same religion. But if you just happen to be a religious uh, business owner, no, you don't. You don't qualify for the exemption. If you just happen to be somebody who has very strong Christian convictions, and you own, let's say, a large nationwide uh, arts and crafts store, home decor store, <clears throat> uh, you don't qualify. At least that's that's the debate, right? Do you qualify or do you not qualify? Do you have the individual right as the owner of a corporation to say, these are my convictions and this is what I'll provide and I cannot in good conscience provide pay for abortifacient drugs. I believe that that would be me paying for murder and I'm not willing to be a participant in murder. No. Or I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's murder. And so I'm not willing to 
do anything against conscience. It's neither wise nor safe, as Martin Luther said. You know, so there's this question of how do you fight that idea? Well, the the radical left is actually downright puritanical with regards to believing that you must affirm, you must affirm a woman's right to get an abortion if she doesn't want to be pregnant. She gets pregnant and she doesn't want to be pregnant. You have to affirm that. And if you don't affirm that, then it's open season on you. It's okay to break your skull and destroy your business and tell you to kill yourself and, and all that kind of stuff. That's totally okay, as we're seeing right now with protests of the forthcoming decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. In a sad kind of irony, falling on Mother's Day weekend. You know, to use the other example, gay marriage. Does an employer who happens to employ somebody who comes out as gay and then also subsequently declares that they're going to marry their gay partner, does said employer have an obligation to provide X, Y, and Z affirmation, support. And these are these are big questions. And the left is all about religious liberty if it's liberty for them to believe or not believe or do whatever they want. But they're not for religious liberty when it comes to those who object, those who are conservatives, to abstain. So let's take the Ben-Hur example, for instance. And that dialogue at the beginning, I think, is a, it's a great, it's a great scene. It's a great movie. And the older one, I still haven't seen the new one. I don't want to see the new one. I like the old one well enough. If I have the time to watch one or the other, I want to watch the old one with Charlton Heston because it's great. It's amazing. But those who are for religious liberty to do what you feel you must, according to the dictates of your conscience, to worship God, to honor your maker, because you're going to one day give an account to him as judge. Those folks, in my view, are the Ben-Hurs. I reserve the right, I reserve the option to not participate in what the zealots are doing. I can't do it in good conscience. I believe that's wrong, or at least there's some wrong mixed in there, and I think there's a lot of temptation to do wrong. Also, it would preclude me doing other things that I believe are more right. There's an opportunity cost. If I am participating in what the zealots are doing, I am not doing X, Y, and Z that I do believe I must. So it's both and, right? It's left foot, right foot. Left pedal, right pedal. Like you're riding a bike. But so also, Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur, reserves the right to not participate in Masala trying to round these guys up. So that, there's a curious thing there, right? There's a curious thing. He's not for the zealots. Also, he is not for the zealots being rounded up and crucified on the sides of the roads at the entrances of the towns and cities. He is not for their families being left destitute. He wants to be neutral, and he wants to fight 
ideas with another idea. And Masala agrees with that in principle. He just, well, he has his own idea. And part of how he's going to fight an idea with an idea is by letting word get around that he is ruthless and you had better not cross him because if he's willing to throw his childhood boyhood friend in prison or send him off to be a galley slave, which is pretty much a death sentence, if he's willing to do that, then nobody but nobody is safe if they step out of line. You'd better all be right and tight. You know, Judah believes he should have the freedom of conscience to say, no, no, I'm not participating in that. And Masala can't stand that. He cannot tolerate Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur, saying, no, I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to affirm. I'm not going to endorse. I'm not going to help you in what you're doing here. That is how the radical left is in this country. But there, there has to be a certain point at which you say, no, we are not allowed to do X, Y, and Z. Right? They're not all wrong. The radical left is not all wrong in every particular. Where they're dead wrong is with their big picture idea of what should be completely forbidden and what should be mandated. They're right that the way you fight the Christian ethic with regards to family, with regards to politics, with regards to society and economics and the market, domestic policy, foreign policy, they're right that the way you fight the Christian ethic is with the leftist ethic. They're right about that. They're right that the way you fight the theistic approach is with an atheistic approach. But part of how they're willing to communicate their ideas is through violence. Hey, you can tell we really mean this because we're willing to shed blood. We're willing to smash things. We're willing to set buildings and vehicles on fire. You can tell that we really, really mean it. And historically, throughout the history of the church, you've been able to tell that Christ's followers really mean it. Not because they loot and pillage and burn and destroy and kill and maim, but because they're willing to be subjected to all of the above rather than violate what they perceive to be God's will for their lives. This is what the Lord wants me to do, and what you're telling me to do is disobedience either active or passive. You want me to not testify to the goodness of God. You want me to not meet together with fellow believers. You want me to not teach my children God's word. You want me to not read my Bible. You want me to not sing these songs about my Lord and Savior. You want me to not participate in communion. You want me to not be a Christian. We must obey God rather than men. Now, a curious thing enters into the discussion with regards to abortion. And I would point out that in early church history, Christians objected to more than just how Christians acted. You know, it's a, it's a fallacious perspective 
that minding your own business, working with your hands, aspiring to live a quiet life means that you say nothing, you don't engage at all whatsoever with regards to the business of the community, the collective good. You know, imagine if I were to go even harder and farther in that way of thinking, that mindset, and I were to say, even things that happen on my street, in my neighborhood, well, it's none of my business. And in some quarters, this happens, right? And usually in those communities, when that happens, you have major problems with gangs. And why is that? It's because young men are looking for security and they band together with other young men in packs because they need somebody to have their back against the other gang across town. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, auntie and uncle can't be relied on to have my back because they're just minding their own business. I'm sorry, this is your business. What happens to your son, your daughter, your grandson, your granddaughter, your niece, your nephew, your brother, your sister, your neighbor, their children, their grandchildren. That is your business. But imagine I said even in my own household, whatever my whatever my sons do, that's none of my business. I'm just going to mind my own business, do my work. Whatever my daughter does, it's none of my business. And she's eight. What she does and does not do is very much my business. It's absolutely my business. You know, so for the Christian, yes, there is a kind of paternalistic quality maybe where I look at the abortion question and I think to myself, it really doesn't matter if we're talking about my daughter or my son. The fact that it's your daughter and your son, I still need to weigh in on that. Oh, the fact that you don't believe in Christ and you're not a Christian and you, you, or you, you call yourself a Christian and you say you believe in Christ and you belong to Christ, but you disagree about when life begins. Is that my business at all? Well, yes, yes, it is. Yes, it, that is my business. Mankind is my business. You know, it, it, you can't have it both ways. And I was, talking about this on a recent episode where I was trying to treat Tim Keller and something he recently wrote. Tim Keller, the founder of Redeemer City to City Ministries in New York City, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. You know, he was talking about how it's just, it's unclear, right? We, we're going to have to debate whether we have a Christian duty to support higher taxes if that's what provides for the needs of the poor, the orphans, the widows, etc. You know, we're going to have to have debates within the church over when welcoming foreigners means that you just allow however many of them want to come into your country to come into your country. We're going to have to have debates about that. We're going to have to have debates about what the best way of putting an end to abortion really is. You know, does making it illegal or leaving it legal help more? Who can tell? Oh, well, while we're at it, should we have a debate about whether all forms of murder should be legal? Is that where we're going next? Of course not. 
If we were consistent, yes. But we're not interested in consistency. We're interested in expedience as we see it from a materialistic standpoint, from a purely physical standpoint. You know, throughout two millennia of church history, that's been a perennial recurring dilemma and all variations, all potential possible variations have been regarded as heresy, wherein we can either accept that Jesus is fully God or we can accept that Jesus is fully man, but various teachers and leaders of movements throughout church history have just not been willing to accept both at the same time, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. So they'll say, well, he was fully God, but he couldn't have been a man. He just appeared to be a man. But it was kind of an illusion, right? Almost like a hologram or or what have you. He just appeared to be a man, but he wasn't really actually. Or they'll say, well, you know, he was fully a man, but he could not have been fully God as well. It was, you know, he's a created being or what have you. And that was an early on heresy dealt with with the Nicene Creed. He was begotten, not created. Jesus is fully God. The Nicene Creed spends a lot of time on the character and nature of the Son, of the Christ. But so also, I mean, projecting outward from that, you have certain movements and traditions throughout church history which emphasize the spiritual to the exclusion of any room for the physical. And actually, I would argue that the Roman Catholic Church got very, very confused in different ways. You you look at priests and nuns taking vows of celibacy because that is a requirement if you want to be a leader in the church. And obviously, there were workarounds at various times where you find out that popes, bishops, had mistresses on the side and even had children by those mistresses. And so, you know, what? why are you pretending? What is all this pretending at celibacy? What's it for? It's a, it's a sham. I mean, it's unbiblical on the front end, but but also it's a sham that you're trying to keep up appearances just for the sake of tradition and everybody getting along and you being able to have this office. But should we be entirely spiritually minded and ignore the physical world because this earth is not our home? On the other hand, should we downplay the spiritual because all we care about is the physical, but we can't quite conceive of both and at the same time being important, being crucial, being critical. And there's lots of ways to disagree on the particulars. I'll give you an example, a real world example from my life. I just recently this week was hit up by a recruiter who found me on LinkedIn. I had just recently updated my LinkedIn profile to make sure that everything said 10 years of oil and gas experience instead of nine years. I'm now officially at the 10 year mark. And I, you know, while I'm in there, I'm going to go ahead and clean out some of these skills that I've got added in there that are just cluttering up the works, are kind of redundant, and 
it goes without saying, based on the fact that I have this here in this job description from a previous role or, you know, I don't have any endorsements. Nobody's endorsed me for these skills. So maybe it's just like kind of not a big deal. Like, yeah, it's important, but if I'm going to trim down and be more focused on what I'm trying to emphasize in my skill set and my personality, my experience and all that, this is kind of getting in the way. But, uh, you know, I, I updated my LinkedIn profile and I keep it up to date because it's just kind of a passive way of bringing in job offers. And if a really good job offer comes along, I want to have the option to consider it. If it's a good match for who I am and what I've done and what I know and what I like to do, what I believe in, uh, and if it pays well, if it, if it allows me to provide for my family well, I want to hear about it. I want to at least pray about it, talk about it with my wife and my kids and consider doing it. That's part of how we got here to Colorado. But a recruiter hits me up and she's seen my LinkedIn profile. She thinks I would be a really great fit for an opening that they have for an ANC engineer, which is automation and controls engineer. Yes, engineer. I spent the first four and a half years of my ONG career as a operator. I spent the next four and a half to five years as a technician, various technician roles, field services technician, automation technician, a brief stint as automation services regional supervisor for the Rocky Mountains, and then an instrumentation technician, then an INE technician. Lots, lots learned about electrical controls, motors, 480 volts, switch gear, contactors, et cetera, et cetera. And now I'm a system integrator. But engineer? Automation and controls engineer? That? That sounds pretty great, actually. Automation and controls engineer. I like the sound of that. And you might be wondering, well, don't you need to have a bachelor's degree and be a licensed engineer? Not for controls engineering, or at least not necessarily. It really depends on the employer and the state, as I understand it. And in this case, they would prefer, they have it in the job description, they would prefer somebody with a bachelor's degree or better, but it's not, re it's not required. They at least need me to have three to five years of relevant experience and PLC certification, PLC programming certification, particularly in Alan Bradley, Studio 5000, that would also be a great fit for what they need. It's manufacturing. But there's two things, there's two things that could be sticky with a number of folks that I am friends and family with. And not all, right? I have a pretty eclectic collection of friends and family on purpose, deliberately. But for one, it's not just any kind of manufacturing. This is the fourth largest brewery in the country. 
or I should say the fourth largest brewing company. They make Mike's Hard Lemonade and also Mike's Harder Lemonade, for instance. Uh, They also make White Claw, if you're familiar with White Claw. So familiar brands, very popular brands. Uh, Palmetto State Armory is a partner of theirs, PSA. Uh, If you're not familiar, uh, Palmetto State Armory makes a very popular AR-15 uh, or a number of AR-15 options, but they they make very cost-effective but good quality AR-15s. And also, actually, too, they've made their own uh, kind of Glock variation knockoff uh, here in recent years. It's got good reviews. Um, But I have two. Hear that? Gun nuts. I have two Palmetto State Armory AR-15s. And anybody who asks me what I would recommend as far as a cost-effective, good quality rifle, modern sporting rifle. (laughs) It's only an assault rifle if you need to assault somebody. It's a defense rifle if you're defending against assault. Just pro tip there. But PSA, Palmetto State Armory, is uh, a partner with this brewing company. And so that's a positive sign from a political standpoint, as far as my convictions are concerned. Uh, I dare say that a radically left brewing company is probably not going to have Palmetto State Armory as a partner because they're going to be all in on the gun control thing. And that's just, it wouldn't make sense. But I think also too, part of why Palmetto State Armory is a partner or part of why at least this location exists for this brewing company uh, is because Palmetto State Armory, it's called Palmetto State Armory because it resides in the Palmetto State, if you follow me. Uh, That is to say, South Carolina. Palmetto State, South Carolina. So it's a brewing company, and it's in South Carolina. And... I did send her my resume, and I am interested to hear what they have to say. It's not a yes. They haven't made me an actual offer, and I haven't accepted, uh, even once they do, if they do. But I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about this in the general category of religious liberty. I don't want... America to be the kind of country, nor do I want my own personal life to be this way, where prohibition is reinstated. And by that I mean, I think that the repeal of the 18th Amendment by the 21st Amendment to the Constitution, I think the repeal of the 18th Amendment was a good call. I I am for the 21st Amendment. I am not for the 18th Amendment. I think the 18th Amendment was a bad call. I think it actually is a large part of why we have abortion at all. I think that feminism was a bad idea. If you want to hear some really, really radical opinions uh, from me, let's talk about feminism and let's talk about voting rights. I don't think that everybody should be able to vote. I don't think I don't think that as smart as he is, 
it's not a question of intelligence or having a level head. I don't think that my 14-year-old son should be able to vote yet. Now, 18 years old? Sure, I, I have no objections to that. But I, I do think that only adults should be allowed to vote, for instance. Uh, it would not break my heart. I, I wouldn't be opposed to only landowners being allowed to vote. I don't think you should be able to vote extra or more if you own more land. But I, I think that would be smart. If, from, I, I, can, I can think of good arguments for only landowners being able to vote. I'll put it that way. I agree with convicted felons not being able to vote. I think that's a fine idea. I agree with, if somebody were to propose it, people who move here from another country not being able to vote right away. I think that wouldn't be a bad idea. You say, you move here from another country, you have to live here in this country X number of years, even if you are granted citizenship, X number of years. I, I wouldn't have any objection to that. At a minimum, I think you should only be able to vote if you're a citizen. Illegal aliens should not be allowed to vote. Dead people should definitely not be allowed to vote. <laughs> By that, of course, I mean their relatives should not be able to vote for them on their behalf. The dead do have a vote in the sense that what they voted for before, what they enacted and said and stated in the way of their wishes before, still does carry an influence with us. But I'm not so sure that it was a good thing that women were given the vote. In fact, if if it were up to me, like if, if somebody just said, like, hey, Garrett, like we're going to do whatever you say with regards to this. Should women continue having the vote or should it only be men? Uh, I'd have to really think about it and consider the arguments. Sorry, I guess it, I'm not trying to be sexist, but I, I have a very, very traditional view of gender. Now, I don't, feel strongly enough about this that I just, you know, I'm all worked up and I lose sleep about it and all that, but it's impossible to deny however you feel about women's suffrage and such like that, feminism, it's impossible to deny that prohibition was what gave women a taste of exercising political power over their men, over the men of society. And I think insofar as there was a problem, but also that perhaps was not the solution, prohibition, we see proof positive that maybe, just maybe, women's suffrage, women becoming our president or vice president or speaker of the house or governors or senators or secretaries of state, you know, maybe it's not necessarily always improving society. That's all I'm saying. You know, I, I think that there have been some very fine women politicians who have had some very, very helpful things to say, some very good beneficial things to say, and I'm glad for them. I do think Deborah in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, uh, I think that she's a necessary component but I also think that it, there's something there's something to the story of Barak and Deborah, where Barak doesn't want to go out to battle unless Deborah goes with him, and there's a kind of shamefulness to that. I also think Isaiah chapter three is instructive. 
But you look at prohibition. And prohibition was born of women organizing politically because they objected to how much their men were drinking, how much their husbands and fathers were drinking. And there was very much an alliance in many sectors between women of the community and uh, clergy in the community. And I think that too has contributed to the way that American Christianity has developed into, by and large, a more feminine expression where men don't always feel as comfortable. And statistically, a lot of men opt out. I think that prohibition helped to cement a certain mentality towards men and women. There was a certain alliance between women in the church and pastors and priests and whatnot that contributed to men not wanting to go to church. Now, prohibition was a a wrong-headed approach. It presumed to be holier than God. God does not issue a categorical prohibition in the scriptures. And that should tell us something. There are certain special cases, like Samson, for instance, where God says, no alcohol at all, not a drop. Mom, while you're pregnant with this child, you're not to have any alcohol whatsoever. And when he is born for his whole life long, he's not to ever drink or consume any alcohol whatsoever. There were other stipulations as well. No cutting of the hair, no touching any dead thing. It was a question of holiness. And so those who believe that we should just have categorical prohibition, they think we would all be holier for having no alcohol. But here's the thing. Those who believe that alcohol should be legal, and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be illegal just because we do have people who abuse alcohol and become alcoholic and they do bad things while they are under the influence of alcohol. They don't do what they ought to do. They do do things that they ought not to do. That's been since the beginning of time. That's been since alcohol was available. And yet, God knowing that better than any of us do, being more acquainted with it than any of us are, God did not prohibit alcohol. Now, some weird things come up when I talk about this with certain of my extended family. Like, for instance, I bring up the fact that Jesus turned water into wine as his first miracle of his public ministry. The wedding in Cana, he turns water into wine. If God agreed with you, prohibitionists, he would have done the opposite. Jesus would have turned the wine into water. Now, he would have had some very upset people on his hands, but that wouldn't have stopped him. That's not why he turned water into wine instead of wine into water. Now, consider Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for men to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Now imagine if we said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And some interpreted that to mean we shouldn't eat bread at all. No, that is not 
good biblical interpretive application. <laughs> it's just not, no, no, that's not what that means. And I can't endorse that, right? Like I can't endorse someone saying, because the scriptures tell us, as they do, that we should not be drunk with wine, but we should be filled with the Spirit. That, therefore, means don't have any alcohol at all. It, it doesn't mean that. Now, consider, if you will, 1 Timothy five twenty three. He says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Or, in another translation, Stop drinking only water and use a little wine instead because of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, we're not supposed to be given to wine, Paul says earlier in his letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, not given to wine nor a striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, but also not covetous. Qualifications for overseers and deacons. Not given to wine. So here we see Paul is able to distinguish between being given or being a drunkard, being addicted, being controlled and mastered by wine on the one hand and drinking in moderation. There's a big difference. Now, if we go to the Old Testament, Leviticus 10.9, we read the following in the English Standard Version. Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Now, that's interesting. What's with that? Drink no wine or strong drink. Okay, let's stop. That's enough. I've heard enough. Lord, there we go. 18th Amendment all the way. Bring it back. Repeal the 21st. Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you. That's enough for me. I don't, I don't need to read it anymore. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Read the rest of the verse. When you go into the tent of meeting. Uh, you know what that implies, right? That implies when you're not going into the tent of meeting, it's okay for you to drink some wine or strong drink in moderation. Now Luke one fifteen talks about John the Baptist. The angel says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, he shall never take wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, why is that special if everybody abstains? If the expectation is that everybody abstains from wine or strong drink, why are we being told this about John the Baptist, that he's a Nazarite? Riddle me that. Now, Ephesians 5.18 also comes into play. Do not get drunk on wine. That's pretty clear, pretty blatant which leads to reckless indiscretion. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. All right. Now the prohibitionist will say, ah, well, even a single serving, even beer, one glass of wine, one shot of whiskey, that's drunk. And one could say, hey, actually, no. Let's do food too. It's not enough to stop it drunkenness. Let's do gluttony. I believe that even one bite of food is gluttony. Well, we're not going to last very long, are we? Perpetual fasting, and then you go to be with the Lord, I guess. Except that's not, that's not discerning. That's not wise. And this is 
an example of what we read about from wise King Solomon. Neither be too good nor too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, I will say on the other hand, if someone's conscience is such that, hey, I cannot in good conscience partake, but they are also gracious to those who disagree, and they're also open to reason, because that's also a Christian virtue. That is part part of a Christian ethic. You're open to reason. Let your reasonableness be known to all, be evident to all. Well, that's fine, right? If your conscience doesn't allow you to partake, religious liberty is for just that. That's what it's about. If my conscience will allow me to partake, I shouldn't use my liberty in such a way that it's spiteful. I'm trying to hurt you. I'm trying to destroy you. I'm trying to tear you down. No, God's not honored by that. The drinking or the not drinking at all, the eating or the not eating at all, is beside the point. The question is, are we doing this out of genuine love and devotion for God, genuine love and devotion to one another? That's the big idea. Whether you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Yes, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Ah, every word counts though. Not just the words you like to prove your point. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Who is that? Now, It's just these sorts of questions that the proponents of religious liberty, the defenders of religious liberty, have to leave room for disagreement on. So here's a question. Should we live in the kind of country where laws are passed that say, ah, well, you know, we have something to go on here. Paul tells Timothy, don't just drink water, drink wine as well for the sake of your stomach. So therefore, all employers must provide at least one beer per working day for all employees. And all employees must also, therefore, drink one beer or one glass of wine per working day on pain of fines. It's a matter of public health policy now. Is that appropriate? Uh, No, particularly if you're dealing with some people who cannot in good conscience. And maybe they're Nazarites. I don't know. They're probably partial Nazarites. I bet they cut their hair, for instance. No, religious liberty leaves room for some in my family to say, I absolutely will never even touch a drop of alcohol. Not even a drop. No. And religious liberty also leaves room for me to say to a recruiter for a large brewing company in the U.S., I'd be willing to talk with you. You know, whether it materializes into a job offer is beside the point to my mind. Now now I'm like a hound on the trail. I've got the scent, and this this question needs to be resolved. Now, I don't think we should just leave it open to interpretation. What is drunkenness? Like we've, we've quantified that. We have put a number to it. We've studied it out. It, it is not a, a single drop. The, the standard, if you get pulled over, let's say, 
you crossed a line, you missed a stoplight, ran it, what have you. Officer pulls you over. They have you do a breathalyzer. The standard is not any alcohol whatsoever in your bloodstream and you are legally intoxicated. No, that's not the standard. The standard is varying from state to state. More severe in some places, less severe in other places. The penalties are more severe in some places, less severe in other places. And that's good. It's good that that is not just absolutely hard and fast. And also it's good that we take positions on those things. But it's a different category when we're talking about something like abortion. A question of degrees in the one case, or for some people, just total abstention. I'm just going to totally abstain from drinking alcohol. Or I partake, but it's a question of how much. It's a question of the dose making the poison on the one hand. Or on the other hand, it's a question of life or no life. It's a question of murder or mercy. So the abortion question really is not a religious liberty question. It's really not. I mean, it is a religious liberty question when it comes to you compelling me to participate, to fund this, to affirm this. Yeah, that's a that's a religious liberty question. And believing as I do that this is murder and that murder is sin against God because we belong to God, we're made in God's image and we belong to God, we'll have to give an account to God. I have a religious liberty to say to you, repent, no, don't do this. That's a religious liberty question. You being free to get an abortion, in my view, is not a religious liberty question. You are not free to get an abortion. Except in the sense that we're all free to do any sinful, wicked thing. But in the interest of consistency, do we want to say we're all free? We all have a religious liberty to commit murder of anyone for any reason, just because they're inconvenient for the life and health of ourselves. Hey, I feel like my career would be more advanced if I got this guy out of the way because he's a competitor. Hey, I feel like my life would be better if I went and robbed this bank and shot these people and got away with the money. No, that's insane. That's the complete abolition of all law and order. No. Now, in closing... For anyone in our area, just to be very, very clear, I'm not saying we're moving to South Carolina, and I'm not saying that we're not. Uh, I will say this. If your conscience is very strongly opposed to the consumption of alcohol, to the manufacturing and distribution of alcohol, uh, we can disagree. We can have a debate about that. I only have so much time, but I, you know, I, I can accept that you have that conviction and I disagree with you and I have considered the matter and I don't believe that just because there's a lot of people who have a drinking problem in the U.S. that that means that nobody should be free to have alcohol or that it shouldn't be on the store shelves. The 18th Amendment was a bad idea. It was tried 100 years ago. It didn't work out so well led to all kinds of government overreach, dysfunction, strife, upset. It was a bad idea. And and there's not there's not good biblical support for the kind of reasoning that it 
is based on and founded on. So if a brewing company offers me a high-paying job and the title of engineer, and they will pay to move my family and I to a part of the country where the cost of living is 20% lower, I'm going to consider it. And, and, you know, where my conscience enters in to that scenario is on the question of, is the man who fails to provide for the needs of his household worse than an unbeliever, worse than an infidel? That That's where my conscience places the special emphasis. But we might just not agree. And if I lose all credibility in the minds of uh, people who feel very, very strongly about such things, uh, because I either do or might accept a job from a major brewing company, uh, I, I kind of put that in the same category in my own mind as what I would if I heard somebody was taking a job in the oil and gas industry and their family thought that fossil fuels were destroying the planet. Oh, you disagree with my working in oil and gas because you think I'm you know, just this sellout or what have you. I'm contributing to climate change and I should just feel horrible about myself. I'm an awful human being. Okay, well, uh, we could talk about it, but no, you're wrong. Uh, and here's why. And if you don't want to hear about it, then okay. And if you don't talk to me ever again, because I believe your conscience is misleading you here, uh, okay, that's fine. I'm going to do what I believe I must, according to my conscience. Not just do whatever I want, but I'm going to do what I believe I must before God, because I am going to give an account to God, not you, first and foremost. In other news, just wrapping up on a lighter note, day before yesterday, I surprised our family. I had worked on Daniel's birthday, and my first day off after his birthday, the day after his birthday, you know, I'm looking at kind of the scenario, and he's not really had a party. Lauren and the kids went to the pool at the Greeley Rec Center with the Longs, the Long family. So that was cool. They had a good time hanging out. Picked up some Freddy's for dinner on the way home. So that was fun. But my boys, especially Evelyn a little bit, have been going across the street and borrowing the neighbor's basketball hoop. And I am not in love with that, not because our neighbor across the street is, you know, somebody I'm afraid to have my kids around. He's a Marine Corps vet, nice guy, grandpa-type age. I think his wife's a nurse. He does appliance repair. Nice guy. His name's Paul. Uh, but I, I feel really nervous about Evelyn, Enoch, John crossing the street or a ball getting away from them and then running out into the street to try and get it and a car coming potentially. Like that just really, really makes me nervous. Don't like that idea. But I do like the idea of them playing basketball. And so day before yesterday, got into the evening. I'm kind of looking at <clears throat> our oldest son dribbling the basketball in the street and shooting it at a tree in our front yard. I'm like, oh, that's kind of sad shooting it at a tree 
because we don't have a basketball hoop. So I called all four of the older boys and said, hey, get your uh, socks and shoes on. We need to go mail a letter. And we did. We, we needed to drop a letter off at the post office. But I said, let's go, uh, let's go mail a letter. And they're like, why do we all need to go with you to mail a letter? I'm like, well, I just I think it'd be cool for you guys to come along. So we go to the post office, mail the letter, and then you know, we're headed back. But obviously we didn't take the conventional route. And uh, long story short, ended up going to Shields and surprised them by picking out a basketball hoop. And we bought it and brought it home, and they're just thrilled. And so yesterday we got it most of the way put together. We have that to finish up this morning. But it was a great opportunity yesterday as we're putting this together, trying to work together. Great opportunity to do a little bit of a team building exercise and to teach them that sometimes you have to be willing to walk away. You just do. Sometimes things aren't going together the way that you thought they should. And we got late into the evening and still didn't have it quite finished or not very far. I mean, maybe 15 minutes from the finish line, but also tired and it's getting dark. And if we're trying to rush across the finish line at that hour, being as tired as we were, that's when you're really going to make a mistake and possibly drop something or fall off a ladder or damage the equipment or hurt somebody. And so I said, you know, like we're just, we're going to pick this back up tomorrow. And believe it or not, a lot of guys don't have an easy time with saying, all right, that's enough for today. You've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. And that holds true for building basketball hoops. That holds true for lots of things. That, that holds true for professional life. You know, I, I used the example of automating a well site and how very often there are deadlines and pop dates put on production dates that are set and known all through the chain. And the guys out there actually putting wrenches on components and putting everything together and testing everything at the last minute very often can feel like if something, if anything turns out to be not quite ready, if the whole site is not quite ready to come online when upper management is expecting it to be, I could lose my job. And so I'm just going to rush. And maybe we're going to skip some things that are really important so that we can get this done faster. Only it's, it's in those very moments, it's in those exact moments that something critically important gets missed. And... People get injured, people die, things get very badly damaged, even destroyed. You have environmental incidents. Then people start losing their jobs sometimes. But if you're able to budget on the front end and say, you know, I think it's going to take this, and so I'm actually going to bake some overage in, well, then you come down to the finish line and you remember Oh, wait, you know what? Actually, I calculated 20% overage on the front end. So we're good, actually. 
let's come in under budget for time, energy, attention, monies. So that's great. I think that was a great opportunity for us to work together yesterday. I think it's great that we were all pitching in, doing different parts of it. I think it's great that we should have the whole thing finished today and then they could start shooting baskets. So that'll be great. That'll be fun. That'll be cool. Good learning opportunity. Good team building moment. But I should jump off. That is to say, I should jump off of here. Call that good for this episode. Jump back into that. Grab another cup of coffee maybe beforehand. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.